0: Now it's my happy pleasure to, my happy duty to introduce Ralph Kies. He's the author of several books, including The the Post-Truth Era, which the Oxford Dictionary cited as the primary source for the word of the year in 2016. He's been on numerous national um, broadcast programs, including Oprah Winfrey, The Today Show, The Tonight Show, ABC World News Tonight and 2020, two times at least. Um, He also has written for a wide range of publications, including um, a column on language published by the, the American Scholar. He's with us tonight to talk about his newest work, The Hidden History of Coined Words. It's a book for word mavens, for history buffs, for fans of trivia contests, and for anyone who loves the immersive power of language. And I think that probably describes all of us who are on this video. Welcome, Ralph.
1: Thank you, Nan. So I'm on, okay, sorry. Well, thank you, Nan, Victoria, Libby, who have been so helpful to me in getting here, and hello, Boston. I am so glad to be talking with members of a group that was so important to my mother's hero, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Mom was such a fan of Emerson that, as perhaps you've guessed, she named her second son after Mr. Emerson. Now, mind you, this was in the Honeymooners era featuring Ralph Cramden, and I spent a lot of my childhood fending off cries of, hello there, Ralphie boy, but, it could have been worse. As I'm sure some of you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson actually would rather have been called Waldo. Now, can you imagine if I had been called Waldo instead of Ralph, then it would have been, where's Waldo? Oh, there's Waldo, pointing in my direction. But I digress. I don't know if Emerson consulted notes when he lectured, but I will. And there's a reason for that. Even though in this talk and in my book, my primary focus is on the interesting, usually unknown stories behind the coining of words. It's also a work of etymology. Uh, I really bent over backwards to get the names right, the coin words right, the dates, the context. And so, I will be consulting notes as I go along just to make sure that you are getting the most accurate information I can give you. So without further ado, let's go to Winston Churchill's desk. Now, what you may be wondering, what is it about Winston Churchill's desk that has anything to do with coin words? Well, if you look a little more closely in the middle of the desk, There's a tool. This was a sort of paper punch that Mr. Churchill used to punch holes in the corners of papers before attaching them. He really, he was very noise phobic and he hated the bang of staplers and so he had his assistants use this punch to punch holes in the papers and then attach them with those little thingies you see up in the left corner, which were called treasury tags, bits of yarn with bars on them. Now, he didn't like the word paper punch particularly. He was very word proud. He called them this uh, punch a clop. That's my clop, hand me the clop. Nobody else picked it up, nor did they pick up the others of the many, many words that Churchill liked to coin. He coined, for example, Fear Thought, which was needless worrying. I kind of like that, but it didn't get picked up. Bottlescape was his name for the bottles that he liked to, um, to paint. And one of my favorites is Qtopia, which is what he called the socialist society to come in which you stood in lines a lot. None of these words made it into the lexicon, but, Several that Churchill used in passing did make it into our ordinary conversation, and one in particular. In 1950, Winston Churchill said, we shall parley at the summit. Now, summit survived that declaration big time. Over the years, we've talked about summit conferences, summit meetings. We even just say, let's summit making a verb out of a noun, summit became a verb, let's summit. And so Winston Churchill, the proud word coiner, turned out to have actually made a contribution to the lexicon that wasn't one he intended. It was just a word he used in passing. And that's not uncommon among word coining, in the, in the world of word coining. It illustrates how hard it is to anticipate which words will will enter the lexicon and which won't, because the coining of words and the adoption of words that are coined is a very haphazard enterprise. It's unpredictable, it's fluky, it's, um, (laughs) as a little girl I used to know coined the word chanceful, very chanceful, very chancy, very spontaneous. Let me give you an example. the early 17 in the I'm sorry in the early 18th century, 1713 to be exact, at Smith's Clo- Smith's Cove in Clou- Gloucester, Mass. Maybe some of you have been there. A new type of ship was launched, a double-masted, l- low-schooning, um, low-floating boat that that skipped over the water. And as it was launched, someone in the crowd that had gathered to watch called out see how she schoons. And the ship's builder, Andrew Robinson responded, a schooner let her be. Now, I don't think Captain Robinson was planning to give us a word that we would use to this day, but he did, schooner. It's a you know very typical word for a certain kind of ship. And it came not out of careful coining, but out of a spontaneous exclamation by Andrew Robinson. In one case after another, this is how words have have been coined and entered the lexicon just by, by gosh and by golly, as we used to say, just by chance. Let me give you another example. In 1900, L. Frank Baum published his very popular book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Now, this word, the last word in his title became very popular, Oz, what a great word. And to this day, we use the word Oz when we say, for example, he's like from Oz. There it is. Wonderful Wizard of Oz. So where did Oz come from? Well, according, some people speculated that Oz was actually meant to be Job's land of Oz. Other people thought it was a mashup of the Ooze and Oz that Frank Baum liked to exciting his readers, but he himself had the most likely, if the most prosaic explanation. Three years after his book was published in an interview, Frank Baum said the way he came up with Oz was he was cogitating on where his wizard would live. And he looked around his office and his eye rested on a file drawer that said, O Z. It was a three drawer file, A to G, H to N, O to Z. And he thought, that's it, Oz. And the rest is history. He had his word and so do we. Now, Baum was just one of many authors for children who created words that were is not just by, his childish readers, but the grown-ups who read to them and the rest of us. Uh, Nerd, for example, This, this took librarians and etymologists years and years and years to try to figure out where it came from. And finally, it was discovered in a 1950 book by Theodore Geisel of Springfield, better known as Dr. Seuss. He referred in that book just in passing to a nerd, it was one of his nonsense words, but now, of course, it's a very common, very popular word. Other other words conjured by Theodore Geisel, you know, Grinch, Nook, Zillow, have also entered the lexicon or, or become brand names. In the case of Zillow, then there's Wimps. Now, as you can see from this book jacket, Wimps was a book for children. It was pu- first published in 1897. In England, it was about a group of kids who were good at picking on other kids, but ran away crying when they were picked on themselves. They were wimps. Well, changing the Y to an I, we still use that word, wimps. Then there's goops. Long before Gwyneth Paltrow was born, seven decades to be exact, A book appeared in 1900 called Goops and How to Be Them. This was written by the humorist Gillette Burgess, who was born in Boston, graduated MIT, went out to San Francisco where he thought he could have more fun and had fun writing this Goop series, Goops and How to Be Them. And of course, gave us a word, a very good word, goop. It's too goopy, don't goop it on. That casserole, it's so goopy. That's the way. <clears throat> that's the way words sometimes enter the enter the enter the lexicon just by being the title of a facetious, a, kind of a silly little children's book. Goops and how to be them. Uh, goon is another word that came out of. Well, I want to say came out of nowhere. That's not true. It came out of Popeye. Popeye had a goon. What he called called a goon family. Featured of the goon family who lived on Goon Island and they were big and kind of ominous. Alice the Goon, especially eight feet tall. And when children misbehaved, this is way you know back in the 30s, they were warned, Alice the Goon is gonna get you. Well, Alice the Goon didn't stick around, but her last name did. We still talk about goons. That was just one of many, many words that have come out of uh, Come off the funny pages. I'm going to read from a a list I have here of other words. It's amazing how many words cartoonists, even though they're mostly drawers, have contributed to our vocabulary. Words such as jeep, heebie-jeebies, I love heebie-jeebies, bodacious, double whammy, worrywort, druthers, nebbish, security blanket, and McCarthyism. Now McCarthyism Appeared first in a 1951 editorial cartoon by the Washington Post cartoonist Herblock, and he used it to dismiss Joseph McCarthy and his many followers who tried to um, uh, <laughs> besmirch anyone they thought was beyond the pale—probably communist. And we still use that word, McCarthyism, for for. Um, using innuendo to diminish people mccarthyism but it came out of a 1951 cartoon by herblock so the many contributions to our language that came out of cartoons weren't necessarily intended does anyone recognize this guy kind of forlorn looking that's casper milktoast he was featured in a series that began in 1925, drawn by H. A. Webster, called The Timid Soul. Casper Melttoast, M-I-L-Q-U-E-T-O-A-S-T, was a morbidly shy character. Didn't the cartoon series didn't last that long, but his last name sure did. To this day, we talked about, well, he's too milktoast, or it's a very milk toasty situation again, one more case in which a cartoon became the source of a very common and popular word in our lexicon. There are many other improbable sources like this of not just venues, but people like look at this guy who contributed coin words. kind of pretty stern looking, right? That is the South African general Jan Smuts. Now, General Smuts was a primary architect of the notorious apartheid system in South Africa in the early 20th century. But that's not all he's known for. He was a polymath, something of a scholar, and he wrote a book in 1926 called Holism and Evolution. And coming out of that book was the word. Holism was the first time it was known to have been used. And of course, we use it all the time nowadays never knowing that it wasn't some new age savant who coined the word holism. It was the very stern and ferocious general Jan Smuts in South Africa, 1926. So as you can see, there's simply no way of predicting where words will come from in the way way of being coined, who will coin them and whether they'll catch on to the consternation of those who think, well, you know, shouldn't words be coined by more erudite people, scholars, who consult Greek and Latin dictionaries and then submit their coinages to the proper authorities to be vetted, which incidentally is an interesting word, vetted. Where did that come from? Well, it was a a piece of military slang. They took the the term vet, to vet a horse, say, for example, mostly vet a horse that veterinarians used and they applied it to soldiers, the soldiers would be vetted. And Kipling used that several times in stories, vetting the soldiers and we picked it up and it, became, it got transferred, not just from the military, but uh, to the world in general, You know, vetting each other, uh, vetting a political candidate, et cetera, et cetera but some people think words should be vetted. Um, I don't. I kind of like the way (laughs) they come into the language now, as I said, by hook and by crook. Uh, They can come from cartoons, books, speeches, but also pranks, taunts, quips, as we'll be seeing as this talk goes along. Take, for example, Horace Walpole. Mr. Walpole in 1754 wrote a letter to a friend of his saying he had been reading a children's book called The Three Princes of Serendip. The three princes were from Serendip, which is now now Sri Lanka, previously Ceylon. And in their travels, they were constantly making accidental discoveries. Now, Mr. Walpole in his letter said, I made up a new word based on serendip for people who make, for the process of making as accidental discoveries. It's serendipity. Now, he didn't think of that as a, a serious uh, coinage. He, it was just a, a confection, a little joke between friends. We don't know that Walpole ever used it again. It just showed up in this one letter. But then decades later, after his letters were published, The word got picked up and slowly entered the language, serendipity. There was a need for a word like that since so many of us make accidental discoveries. And today it's one of our most popular words. It commonly is at the head of lists of top 10 favorite words, serendipity. And yet it began its life as a simple quip, but uh, a wisecrack between friends. Now, decades after Walpole wrote his letter, in 1833, members of the British Academy, I'm sorry, the British Association for the Advancement of Science got together to try to come up with a name for themselves. Who are we? What can we call ourselves? Well, they tried out natural philosopher, but eh, that was kind of a mouthful. They tried "nature naturefuscher, and my German isn't very good. It's German for... Um, natural people who research nature or explore nature, but it was kind of presumptuous and after all, German. And then there was savant, same thing, presumptuous and French. So then one of their members, William Huiwell, who was the master of Trinity College, Cambridge, contributed scientist, scientist. Now, he was not serious. And nobody took it seriously as he pointed out it was like well it's kind of like artist or atheist or tobacconist or sciolist which was a word in use at the time that meant somebody who thinks they know a lot but but don't really that was a stylist so everybody had a good laugh and they moved along but they didn't ever come up with a name for themselves now seven years later Mr. Wewell published a book in 1840 in which he again floated the word scientist, again not seriously, but now people outside the profession got to read his book and they kind of took to the word scientist. That's not a bad word. Now again, Wewell and his colleagues didn't necessarily agree. The eminent biologist Thomas Huxley said he considered scientists on a par with electrocution as a word he uh, he didn't like be that as it may members of the public liked it just fine and even though it began as a facetious quip scientist has stood the test of time and it's the word we use and they finally threw in the towel and use for themselves perfectly respectable so then there's the word gerrymander now this one grows out of a situation in 1812 in Massachusetts, where Governor Elbridge Gerry presided over the creative, artistic drawing of congressional districts. The, he was a Democratic Republican. The federal, the opposition Federalists, were outraged at, at at how they were frozen out of these districts. And a few days later, this caricature appeared in the um, Boston Gazette. It said, the gerrymander, a new species of monster which appeared in the Essex South District in January 1812. Nothing better having presented itself, we still use that word, gerrymander you know, serves its purpose. Who knows where it came from or what it actually refers to, but we know the meaning and we still use it. But here's an interesting sidelight. Elbridge Gary pronounced his name with a hard G. It wasn't Elbridge Jerry. it was Elbridge Gary. So if we were being technically correct in adapting his name for, for this word, it would be gerrymander, not gerrymander, gerrymander with a hard G. Another unlikely coinage also appeared in a Boston newspaper. This one in 1839, uh, the Boston Morning Post. In this iteration, the word OK first appeared. Now, where did OK come from? Just zero, I'm sorry, O and K. Well, at the time it was all the rage to misspell words and then abbreviate them. So they misspelled for all correct. They had O-L-L-K-O-R-R-E-C-T abbreviated O K. Now they didn't think they were adding one of our most useful words ever, okay. I mean, what a fabulous word. It, It indicates affirmation without approval yeah that's okay you yeah, yeah i guess i'm okay with that but where did where did it come from well it came out of this just this gag this joke among journalists in 1839 in the boston morning post incidentally it's such a popular and durable word i i like foreign movies and i'll be watching a movie in french or german or spanish or swahili and i'll hear okay being used all the time it's become an international, very useful little word, okay. Taunting is another great source of new words. At one time, many Americans, this is during the Civil War, late Civil War, were very alarmed by the prospect of intermarriage. And in 1864, this this booklet, you can see the cover, Uh, miscegenation appeared on the um, streets of Manhattan. Cost 25 cents, was 72 pages long. And it said, miscegenation, the theory of the blending of the races applied to the American white man and Negro. Now, the whole point of this booklet was to extol intermarriage, to say that once the slaves were freed and the war was won, we would be free to intermarry and have a stronger race. Well this was anathema not just to those below the Mason-Dixon line, but at the time those above. Um, but the author of the of this booklet said he, he thought we really needed a, a better word than amalgamation to discuss what was about to happen after the war was won, and he had consulted a Latin dictionary and he got um, miser to mix in genus, race, and created miscegenation. Well, it turned out this was not a legitimate booklet. It didn't serve its purpose or not, which was to try to disrupt the election and create such an uproar that Abraham Lincoln would be defeated. Well, Abraham Lincoln was not defeated, but the word miscegenation stuck around and we still use it. I looked up recently in an online thesaurus and I couldn't find a good um, a good synonym for miscegenation even though it grew out of a, a hoax, a political dirty trick. It's a word we still find useful and still use. Another term that grew out of a ruse became, came out of a an effort by the British early in World War I in 1915 to come up with a vehicle, an armed vehicle, that would be capable of, of crawling over trenches and barbed wire. This one looks like it's kind of sucking the mud. But anyway, that's the the vehicle they came up with, with a the, the caterpillar tractor, the caterpillar traction, etc. But they at first they called this a land ship, but they were worried this would if it was found out this would tip off the enemy as to what they were working on. So they tried to come up with a more innocuous word. And a committee was appointed. And finally, after much uh, consideration, they suggested tank, like as in a water tank. Well, (laughs) that's what it was called then. What's what it's called now, a tank. Uh, It was simply this innocuous word meant to distract the enemy, but it served its purpose then, and a century later, it still serves its purpose. This type of military vehicle is called a tank. Now, another word that grew up a few years before this, actually, and, and then grew popular at the same time, is the word moxie. So where does moxie come from now in new england i don't need to tell you it's the name of a soft drink uh, that w- at one time was uh, an extremely popular soft drink but it began as moxie nerve tonic and this was the concoction of augustin thompson a homeopath in maine who created M- moxie nerve tonic and i'm going to read you what it said what he said he prom- thompson promised it would cure brain and nervous exhaustion, loss of manhood, imbecility and helplessness. So where did he get his name? Well, Dr. Thompson said he took it from an old friend of his, Lieutenant Moxie. Okay, so after Moxie became an extremely popular drink, more and when it stopped being a patent medicine just became a soft drink, vehicles like this called Mobiles, toured the country or toured New England Uh, stopping at fairs, festivals, athletic events to sell moxie. And it became very, very popular. There were uh, songs, you know, make mine moxie. There was a moxie trot dance. Um, And eventually it became a generic word. She's got moxie, meaning she's got gumption, she's got chutzpah. So then when he realized uh, what a huge success he had on his hand, Dr. Thompson said, oh, well, actually, no, there was no man named Moxie. It was a, a word he coined himself, so he took credit for its coinage. But as those of you from Maine or have been to Maine are probably aware, there are plenty of Moxie coves, Moxie lakes, Moxie falls, Moxie woods, plenty of places using the name Moxie long before there was a Moxie nerve tonic. So, uh, it was a, con, a bit of a con job by, by Dr. Thompson, but a con that uh, was very successful in implanting this word in our language. I've got moxie. So isn't it interesting the way the places words come from. Taunting is another capital source of new words. And let me give you a few that grew out of taunts. Suffragette is a word that well, we have a let, let, let's let's go on to this this uh, young lady and come back. Uh, this is someone wearing what was called the Bloomer outfit. So the Bloomer outfit had a billowy uh, dress over harem pants and was designed by a woman named Elizabeth Miller in 1851 for women to wear, to free themselves from the cumbersome dress that was prescribed at the time. Now, one of the wearers was a woman named Amelia Bloomer, who was a uh, staunch feminist editor of the newspaper The Lily, and she pictured herself in her publication wearing this outfit. Well, <laughs> pretty in 1851, the Boston, um, uh, the Boston transcript immediately called it the Bloomer costume, the Bloomer outfit. And that opened up the floodgates, then it was bloomerism. Anybody who wears it is practicing bloomerism. They're bloomerites. Let's have a bloomer dance. Let's dance the bloomer polka. It was all men, of course, that were coming up with any way they could think of to deride the little mock people, women who wore what they called the bloomer outfit. Today, of course, bloomer... The word "bloomer" is still around, but all it really refers to is a type of underwear. She's wearing bloomers. There's nothing pejorative about it, but this is uh, illustrates what linguists call semantic bleaching, in which a word originally meant to be pejorative loses its sting over time and becomes just an ordinary, non-judgmental word. And let me give you a really interesting example: "guy." Now, guy is a very common, ordinary word. It just, all it refers to is, you know, a man. He's a guy. In the plural, guys refers to mixed groups. So you guys ready to order? Where did it come from? Well, it came from Guy Fawkes. Guy Fawkes was the the rebellious Englishman who wanted to blow up the uh, British parliament in 19, in, I'm sorry, 1605, was executed in 1606. And after that, when you wanted to really insult a man, you called him a guy. He was like, Guy Fox. except in the colonies. For some reason, guy in North America became a very ordinary word, just referred to a bloke, a chap, a fellow. He's a guy, still does but it remained rather insulting in england even as late as 1921 when gk chesterton came to this country from, from london and didn't know what to make of people calling him a regular guy oh mr chesterton you're a real regular guy were they insulting him well he came to realize it was a, it was meant as a compliment but that as i say is in is an example of semantic bleaching, when a word starts out as a taunt and insult and becomes just an ordinary word or even a compliment in the case of a regular guy. So some neologisms win contests. That's another source of of good words, contests. And one of them uh, came out of a a competition that was mounted in your own backyard. Uh, During Prohibition, Del Severe King, a wealthy Boston banker and a staunch prohibitionist thought we really needed a, a word to characterize those who were flouting prohibition. So he, he held a contest and he offered $200 to whoever could come up with a good word for those who were flouting prohibition. Well, two people, one from Andover, the other from Dorchester both submitted scofflaw. This was the winner, they split the prize, Prohibition is long gone, there's no need for a word to characterize those who flout laws against drinking alcohol because there are no more laws against drinking alcohol, but there are other types of laws that can be flouted and we still use the word scofflaw for people who scoff at the law, they're laws, but the good winner of a contest. Other words that won contests include transistor, nylon, and spam. Good old Spam, which in 1936 won a competition mounted by Hormel to offer a better name for its meat medley, its spiced meat in a a, um, tin. And the winner came up with Spam, uh, one of the most successful brand names in American history and one, of course, that went on to be used as slang for um, junk email. So contests wisecracks taunts typos we just don't know where neologisms the you know the pro word for coin words come from we just we we just don't know where and where will the where will the next ones come from we're we're just not sure and thankfully thankfully what fun would it be if words could only be introduced into the language after careful construction and, and you know squinty eyed scrutiny by erudite scholars. That would be uh, really boring. So I prefer, and incidentally this happens in countries like Spain, France, Italy, they have academies that scrutinize new words and tell us which ones we're allowed to use. They're not always successful, but that's the intent. We have no such intent. English is an open source language. Anyone is free to contribute a word to the the vernacular and good deal. That's why English is such a lively, flexible, nuanced, user-friendly language because words can come from just about anywhere. So, who would have thought that a word like Zoom would become so ubiquitous? Now, one of the things I write about in The Hidden History of coined Words is how there's not just coining words from scratch, there's a process of what I call recoining. Now, zoom obviously has a long history, you know, you zoom someplace, you go there fast, you have a zoom lens, you, you zoom in on something, etc. But when it was recoined by the country that gave us the medium that I'm now using and we're communicating on, it all it was picked up immediately. It's such a good word, Zoom, and has well, I don't have to tell you how many usages it, 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 it's acquired in, in, in a year's time. Uh, so I'm in my Zoom room wearing my Zoom outfit. Why don't you zoom me? Unless you're zoomed out. You know, we are getting Zoomified these days, aren't we? And on and on and on. There's a lesson here for those of you who might be bold enough to want to try coining a word on your own. Think first about words that are terse, forceful, and use good letters, like Z. Z is an excellent letter, not just for a word like Zoom, but... Zillow, sizzle, jazz, razz, dazzle, razzle-dazzle. Such words have pizzazz, they got razzmatazz. So think Z, that's a very good word, a very good letter for a new word. It just, it sounds good in the mouth. B is another good letter, one that bursts from your mouth like a BB from a pellet gun. Bah, bunk bull, baloney. It's just, it's got such a a forceful tone to it. So think B, some people have argued semi-seriously that one reason Brexit outdid remain in the election, in the referendum in Britain, Great Britain, was that Brexit is a much more forceful word than remain and benefits from that B at the outset, Brexit, Uh, it's just a very, unfortunately, in my estimation, a very good word for something you want to promote. The Oxford English Dictionary in one of its early editions pointed out how many new words involve bees, dozens, scores of them, and to give you just a few from that edition, blab, blah, blot, blotch, buster, bustle, buzz, boom, bluster, but, okay, take boom. Doubling up on O's is a really good strategy. Boom, boo, bloomer, bamboozle, google, goop, goon, gobbledygook, which not only benefits from double O's, but G and B, gobbledygook. One of our favorite words. Boondoggle is another word that benefits from A B, two O's, and two G's. Excellent word, boondoggle with great letters. Now, even if you follow all the rules of good word coinage, make them terse, forceful, use good letters, the odds of getting a neologism, alas, adopted and put in use are very, very slim. They're like salmon eggs, many many are spawned, few make it upstream and only a tiny handful hatch. And it's the same thing can be said of coined words. As we've seen, neologism adoption is at the mercy of circumstances, it's fluky to the max. So let's illustrate this point in closing by asking some questions. Here are my questions. Suppose Frank Baum's file cabinet had had four drawers instead of three, the last of which was labeled U-Z. Would his wizard then have ended up joining job in the land of Uz? What if Winston Churchill had said, we shall meet at the apex or we shall parley at the peak? Would we have peak summit? Would we, I'm sorry, would we have peak conferences? Would we have apex meetings? Would we peak? Would we apex? Maybe. Imagine that Hormel's contest judges thought that hamloaf was a better um, uh, submission than spam for their their spiced meat product. Would junk emails now be called hamloves? And what if Amelia Jenks hadn't married Dexter Bloomer and taken his surname? Would a type of underwear today be called a, a Jenks? And if the rebel Guy Fox had been called Guido, as he wished he had, that was his nickname in, in Italian where he had studied, if he had been called Guido, would a generic man now be called a, a Guido? And mixed group Guidos? So you Guidos ready to order? Such questions take us back to the central theme of this talk and in my book on coin words, the unpredictability of word coinage. Their absurd tenor illustrates the difficulty of nailing down exactly how usable words are created and which ones will be taken over by users, which ones will win the adoption sweepstakes. The little known stories surrounding them constitute a bully base of chance, happenstance and happy accident. And thank goodness, The endless vagaries, 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 are what make the history of word coinage such a fascinating subject. So thank you, Boston. Thank you for having me here at the Antheneum, even if it's only virtually.
2: Thanks, Ralph. So um, some good questions here. Well, first I'm I'm gonna start. You started off the top of the hour by talking about Ralph Waldo Emerson. So did Emerson coin any words?
1: Well, that's an interesting question and I'm glad you asked it. I don't know of any words as such that he coined, but he was an early user of a very important word in the English vernacular. And there's a story to that. In 1955, the British journalist, Henry Fairley, uh, wrote a column in which he's claimed to have coined the word establishment to refer to prominent, powerful members of society. They're members of the establishment. Well, there were roars of outrage by any number of Brits who had used that word before, Mr. Fairley, how dare you? I used it in 1933, I used it in 1925, and sure enough, plenty of earlier uses were found. Well, this prompted Henry Fairley to do a bunch of research as to where it actually was first used. And lo and behold, his research took him to an 1841 lecture by Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, in which he called uh, the topic of his speech, the conservative and upholder of the establishment. So as far as Henry Fairley was concerned, that was the earliest use of the word establishment by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And as far as we know, that remains the earliest use of establishment in the way we use it today.
2: when was the expression to coin a word
1: coined? It's an interesting question. The first awareness we have of it is in a late 16th century book by George Putnam called The Art of English Poesy. And he railed against uh, young pretentious scholars who presumed to coin words. He spelled it C-O-I-G-N-E. That's the earliest known use of the term coin. But so obviously, you know, centuries ago, the idea of coining words like minting coins was was circulating. I found a cookbook from 1615 in which the author advised um, housewives that they should not be intimidated by fancy chefs who coin elaborate words for their dishes. Uh, be satisfied to cook simple dishes that don't have fancy coin titles. So it, it, it goes way back into the early 1600s. Shakespeare used it a lot. So I shall coin words until my lungs burst. He, he had a character say in a 1607 play. It goes way back.
2: Speaking of Shakespeare, oops, sorry. Who, uh, what, or who was the greatest source of new English words? This this individual is saying. I'm wondering Shakespeare.
1: (laughs) That's a really hard question to answer. (laughs) A good question. Um, Shakespeare is certainly a leading candidate. Chaucer, Uh, Milton. Many people think Milton, uh, uh, who coined just one word after another, and is the favorite coiner of many people, Uh, and yet. He And he did things like he, he would double up. He coined the word obtrusive, Milton did. Then he added un and got a twofer, unobtrusive, obtrusive, unobtrusive. He's best known, of course, and this was a, an unintentional coinage, uh, as we've talked about, when he called his, uh, his, when his epic poem included pandemonium for the hell uh, uh, many had to endure, the chaotic hell, uh, unbeknownst to him that word was probably his biggest heritage, his biggest legacy as a coined word, pandemonium, which we still use for chaos. So Milton, Shakespeare, Chaucer, uh, Sir Thomas Brown isn't that well known today but was a, an English physician and philosopher and writer who coined one word after another centuries ago and is still highly regarded as a word coiner.
2: Have you come across any favorite coined words that lasted a while, but we may not know well today?
1: Metrosexual? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I call, it's just, I call, it's amazing how many words enjoy, I call them pop-up words. They enjoy a moment in the sunshine. I mean, think about Y two K. That was the word of the year when, when we were rolling over computers um, two um, two decades ago, and yet it's hardly it's hardly known today. Plutoed is a word that was very popular when Pluto was relegated to non planet status, and again was chosen as the word of the year by the American Dialect Society to refer to. Um, Uh, something that enjoyed, enjoyed prominence and then was relegated to, um, to obscurity, but when was the last time you heard Pluto to use, so I call those pop up words and it's very, very common for words to pop up, new words, coin words pop up, enjoy great popularity and then disappear.
2: We have uh, another attendee that's asking why don't we have competitions for naming things anymore. Why don't we? Yeah.
1: That's the question? Well, that's a good question. Uh, they've certainly been popular over time. Uh, the Barbara Walrath, who lives in Massachusetts, may still live in Boston. Anyway, she ran a competition for years in the Atlantic called the Word Court, uh, called Word Fugitives, uh, in which she invited people to contribute coin words. There's a problem here, and Walraff addressed this problem often. Word competitions tend to favor the clever over the useful. Um, I'll give you an example. NPR, National Public Radio, sponsored a competition a few years ago for an almost sneeze. What do you call it when somebody almost sneezes, but not quite? Well, they got hundreds of entries, and the winner was Sniffhanger. Sniffhanger. So, that was the first and last I think sniffhanger was ever heard from. And the problem is that competi- word coining competition, it, it's loads of fun. I, I love you know, coming up with clever words, but for the most part, winners of word competitions do not go on to become usable words in the in the vernacular. Uh, spam notwithstanding and scofflaw notwithstanding, those are the vast exception.
2: We have another attendee that's um, asking if you will mention another favorite Bostonian, Al Cap. His contributions are really favorites, but what were his inspirations?
1: I'm sorry, I missed. What was the book?
2: Uh, a f- another favorite Bostonian, Al Cap.
1: Oh, gosh, that's right. Duh. Why didn't I think that Al Cap, <laughs> my agent's... Um... Father used to run a tavern in Cambridge, uh, and Al Cap was uh, showed up often. Anyway, yeah, Al Cap. Well, he was a wonderful coiner of words. And John Steinbeck, who won a Nobel Prize for literature, went so far as to say Al Cap should be um, given a Nobel Prize for his inventiveness in creating a whole world of language that, that the rest of us continue to use. Uh, you know, just double whammy is, of course, first he had a whammy, then a double whammy. Uh, Bodacious, if I had my druthers, Kickapoo Joy Juice. My favorite is Job of Splick, uh, BF, Besplick, BFPLSK. Uh, <laughs> the, the, guy, the guy who walked around with rain clouds over his head, bringing misfortune wherever he went. Um, when people would ask him, well, how is your name pronounced?" He would say, the split, B BFLSPK. Uh, now we can't really pronounce this word, but I often see that show up in the press. He's the job of split of this or he's the Job of split of that. So yeah, Al Cap was one of the, one of the greatest word coiners of our time and a perfect illustration of, of how cartoonists uh, have contributed so much to our, to our uh, vocabulary.
2: Are there any groups or organizations one can join that focus on word coining? I feel like you uh, might be president of one.
1: Yeah, no, I don't. Gosh, you guys should create one. <laughs> it's a good idea. Uh, no, I've never heard of one. There's the American Dialect Society, which has a committee on new words. And every year they get together and um, vote on the, the best new words of the year. But as we've seen, they don't always come up with ones that, that last very long.
2: Do coined, words, do coined words enjoy much usage across generations or are they used by one generation but not passed along to the next?
1: Well, that's an excellent question. I think more broadly speaking, Oscar Wilde said one generation never wants to adopt the slang of another, excuse me, of the one preceding. Just as an aside, I think one of the most underrated motivations in, in human life is the motivation to want to do things differently than your parents did them. So of course you wouldn't want to use uh, their coinages. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, Boomers several years ago talked about toe tappers um, who had a wide stance as um, closeted gays. So why toe tappers? Why wide stance? Because uh, a Senator from Idaho had been caught tapping his toes in a men's room and spreading his legs wide. And he said that uh, that was just, he had a wide stance. So there are lots of of coinages. Uh, I'll give you one, I'm sorry, that has disappeared and wished hadn't, uh, Mugwump. What a great word, Mugwump. Uh, It's taken from an Indian word, I don't know how it's pronounced, mugquomp, which referred to a big chief. I think it was uh, Algonquian up in this area. And that got uh, reduced, I don't want to say reduced, got converted into mugwump when a bunch of um, Republicans fled the party to endorse the Democratic-Republican for president in 1884, uh, Grover Cleveland. They were called mugwumps, uh, refugees from the party, outlaws, outliers, renegades, mugwumps. And that word was used for the longest time. It was very popular and then it faded out. Uh, I wish it would come back. We need that. We need a word like Mugwump.
2: Do you know the origins of the phrase putting you on or pulling someone's leg?
1: Huh. I have no idea. I wish I did. They're both good ones. He's putting me on, he's pulling my leg. I don't know. Good question, I'll look it up afterwards. <laughs>
2: And we'll end on this question. Um, marketing often uses the letter K in catchy ads because it is less it is a less used letter than most. Are there any coined words starting with K that have lasted the ages?
1: Whoa. Krispy Kreme? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, K is a, it doesn't start with K, but OK really benefits from, from the K. A guy who's written a book on OK, uh, Alan Metcalf calls it the power of K. You think some of our favorite cities, Kalamazoo, Kankakee, um, Kissimmee, are, are all benefit from the power of K. So K is a very, very um useful powerful word to use when you're coining when you want to coin a new word i'm sorry letter to use when you want to coin a new word